Well, here at Cow Creek, we believe that the scriptures are the primary means by which the Holy Spirit saves us and sanctifies us as his people. And so we're here um, at Cow Creek committed to preaching the Bible and teaching the Bible. And since we know that the authority is in God's word in Scripture, not in us, we're committed to what is often called expository preaching. In other words, when someone gets up and to preach a text of Scripture in this pulpit, whether me or someone else, that we want the message of the passage to be the message of the sermon so that we are just simply saying what God says and helping us to see how it applies to our lives. And then finally, since God has told us that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, we're committed here at Cow Creek to preaching and teaching through whole books of the Bible. And not just from certain parts of the Bible, but from every part of the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, not just some kinds of passages, but all the different kinds of literature that we have in the Bible, history and prophecy and wisdom and letters, etc. So over the last eight years, since I've been the primary preacher here, I've preached through Ruth and Luke and Genesis, Ephesians, Hosea, Hebrews, Job, and just recently, 2 Timothy. And since we just finished preaching through 2 Timothy, which is a New Testament letter, I'm going to start a new series today through a book of history that we have in the Old Testament uh, called Joshua. Now, as always, before diving into a book, um, I am going to take some time this Sunday to just introduce you to this book of Joshua. So first, I'm going to cover some of the basic background issues uh, pertaining to the book, like its title, its author, when it was written, uh, what kind of literature it is, why it was written, its purpose of this book of Joshua, which some of you may not be as familiar with, and then highlight for you some of its major themes, drawing out some practical lessons along the way. So let's begin by just considering some basic background matters concerning the book of Joshua. So first, just the title. The book is called Joshua in our English Bibles after its primary human character. By the way, the name Joshua means Yahweh saves. Uh, and in case you didn't realize it, it's also the name that God gave to his Messiah. Jesus is the name Joshua in Greek. But the man named Joshua, who's featured in the book of Joshua, was first introduced to us as readers of the Bible in the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is simply the first five books of the Bible. So Joshua is mentioned 28 times in the books of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And what we know about him is that he was the son of a man named Nun, N-U-N, from the tribe of Judah. He became Moses' right-hand man throughout the wilderness wandering period. He went 
partway up Mount Sinai with Moses, when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law from God. He led the armies of Israel into battle when they had to fight. He was one of those 12 spies that were sent into the land of Canaan to spy out the land in Numbers 13. And he was one of only two spies, along with Caleb, who came back with a good report of the land and encouraged the people to take possession of it. And because of that, Joshua was one of only two Israelites from the entire generation of Israel who had come out of Egypt at the Exodus, who was eventually allowed to enter into the promised land. The rest perished in the desert over that 40-year wilderness wandering period. And then, of course, we know that the Lord actually appointed Joshua to take the place of Moses as leader of Israel upon Moses' death at the end of Deuteronomy and to, of course, head up the conquest of the land of Canaan. So that's the title of the book. Now let's just consider who wrote it, the author of Joshua. Now while the name of the book, the the book is named Joshua, that doesn't mean that Joshua actually wrote the book. For one thing, the book never says that he wrote the book. Um, And for another, there are certain details in the book that indicate that there was a significant gap between the events that the book is telling you about and the time when the book was written. But chapter 24 seems to indicate that Joshua died not long after the events recorded in the book. In other words, not long after the conquest was finished, he was old and he died. So the book was probably written by someone else who lived after Joshua. But who? And the answer is, we just don't know. Like so many of the other Old Testament books, the human author remains anonymous. And really, any suggestions as to who it was would simply be speculation. So we don't know who wrote it, and that's okay. We don't need to know who wrote the book in order to understand and profit from the book. It's good enough to know that ultimately it's God's holy word. But let's turn now to consider the matter of dating When was the book of Joshua written? There are two issues here. First of all, let's take a step back and consider when did the events recorded in the book occur? And we can figure that out by comparing it to the Exodus event. Because using details that are in the scripture, we can actually date the Exodus of Israel out of Egypt to 1446 B.C., If you want to know why, you can look up in a commentary. There is some debate about that. Some people opt for a later date, but I think that early date is fairly certain. Now, of course, then, if you know when the Exodus happened, when did the events in the book of Joshua happen? 40 years after the Exodus, right? After that 40-year wilderness wandering period. And so that would mean that assuming that date for the Exodus the events recorded in the book of Exodus occurred somewhere around 1406 B.C. And hopefully that just helps you and you kids when I say that type of thing. Remember, I say that because these events that are written in this book really happened in history. A long time ago, but they happened. 
And there are actually many features of the book which archaeologists have recognized really uh, fit well with that period of history in the second century or second millennium BC. But the second issue is not just the date of the events recorded in the book, but then when was this account of those events written? When was the book of Joshua actually written? And this is a little bit of a trickier issue because I said we don't know who wrote it and we really don't know exactly when it was written. I did suggest that there was some gap between the events recorded in the book and when it was written. There's a gap there. But there are things in the book that indicate that that gap may not have been very long. So, for instance, in chapter 6, verse 25, it says this, But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day. Think about that for a second. That means that Rahab, who was probably a very young girl, maybe an older teenager or in her early 20s, uh, when her hometown of Jericho was destroyed in Joshua chapter 6, she seems to be still alive at the time the book was written. Now that would mean that Joshua was written sometime in the late 1300s BC, but less than a 100 years after the events described in the book. But now let's consider the genre of the book. In other words, what kind of book is this? What kind of literature is this? Well, when you look in the book, there are different kinds of literature in it. There's some poetry, there's some prophecy, you know, some thus saith the Lord. But for the most part, it is a historical narrative. In other words, it tells a very astounding story of true events in ancient history. So Joshua, for instance, really existed. He really led the nation of Israel to conquer the land of Canaan, as confirmed on multiple occasions, by the way, in the New Testament. Of course, that doesn't mean that the book of Joshua is a history book like the history books we read today. It is neither a comprehensive history, nor is it some kind of dispassionate account of historical events, like modern history books at least claim to be. Rather, what we have in Joshua is a selective account of certain historical events and written to convince you and I, the reader, of certain theological truths about God. So you might call Joshua a theological history. And then fifth, and finally, let's just consider the purpose of the book. Why did someone write this book called Joshua? Well, even though Moses did not write the book of Joshua, because, of course, he was dead before it was written, um, whoever did write this book was clearly intentionally picking up uh, where Moses left off, right? In other words, the book of Deuteronomy, the last book in the Pentateuch, ends with a count of Moses' death. And guess how the book of Joshua begins? With these words. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, these things happen. So clearly picking up where Moses left off in the Pentateuch. And there are at least four clear allusions to verses from the last book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, 
in the first eight verses of Joshua. In other words, the author is clearly wanting to continue the story of Israel's history, to communicate to us that I'm picking up where Moses left off in the Pentateuch. And this is important because the story of the Pentateuch was not complete, was it? I mean, Moses had recounted in the book of Genesis, for instance, how God made this great promise to the patriarch Abraham. The promise included that God was going to give him many descendants and bring him into the land of Canaan. You remember that promise, right? First articulated in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And Moses had actually seen the first part of that promise fulfilled, right? It had been given to Abraham long before Moses lived. But Moses had actually been there to see the first part of it fulfilled. You remember how he wrote in Exodus 1-7, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Well, there's the first part of the promise, right? That God would make uh, Abraham's descendants into a great nation. Innumerable. Well, that happened. But the other part of the promise to give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan, well, that hadn't been fulfilled when Moses died. That occurred under Joshua's leadership. And the book of Joshua was written to tell us how that happened. In other words, the book of Joshua is an inspired record of how God finished fulfilling his ancient promise to Abraham. So, for instance, At the end of the book of Joshua, this is what it says in chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. It says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. There it is, right? The Abrahamic promise. And they took possession of it and settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So you see, this is telling you how God fulfilled his promises to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and promises that he had made to Israel and to Moses. Now, of course, the book does leave you with a clear sense that this fulfillment was limited in certain respects. In other words, there is more to tell after the book of Joshua, right? In fact, you see hints of it. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 7 in Joshua tells you that some of the land had yet to be conquered. And then it tells you that Israel actually failed to do that. Also, the book ends with this very solemn warning by Joshua to the people that if they were unfaithful to God, to his covenant, by breaking his law, well, then God would actually remove them from this land, just as he had done to the Canaanites before them. So, for instance, we hear in chapter 23, right toward the end of the book, verses 15 through 16, he says to Israel, Just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if 
you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Now, of course, you've read the Bible story, right? You know that that anticipated the sad story told in the rest of the Old Testament, beginning with the next book of the Bible, the book of Judges. So what Joshua warned about at the end of the book uh, ended up happening. And in this way, you see, Joshua actually leaves us with this sense that this initial fulfillment of the promise of Abraham that we have told here is not ultimate. Rather, something better is needed. And of course, in that way, it anticipates the glory of the New Testament revelation. So having considered some basic background matters concerning the book of Joshua, let's now just examine what's in the book. And let me unpack some of its major themes for you, at least this morning. So the content and the themes of Joshua. Now, to begin with, let me just give you an overview of what's in the book. All right. Now, if you're flying over the book of Joshua at at really high, like 50,000 feet high, and you look down at the book, it appears to divide almost perfectly in half. So chapters 1 through 12, there's 24 chapters in the book. Chapters 1 through 12, Israel conquers the land of Canaan under Joshua's leadership. Chapters 13 through 24, Israel divides the land up between the 12 tribes under Joshua's leadership. So first half of the book, conquering the land. Second half of the book, Dividing the land. All right? That's the 50,000 foot version of the book. But if you go down and you can see a little bit better the landscape of the book, you zoom in, you can see that each of those halves actually divides again. So in the first half of the book, which is all about the conquest of Canaan, it falls into two parts. In chapters 1 through 5, Israel enters the land of Canaan under Joshua's leadership. And in chapters 6 through 12, Israel takes the land under Joshua's leadership. Enters, takes. That's the first half of the book under the heading of conquering the land. Then if you go to 6 through 12, uh, the second part of that first half, um, then you see that that half is all about dividing the land up between the 12 tribes. Um, Sorry, the second half of the book. If we go to the second half of the book, it's all about dividing the land up between the 12 tribes. But in chapters 13 through 21, the land is divided up between the 12 tribes. And then in those last few chapters, chapter 22 through 24, Joshua is charging Israel about how to live now in this land that they've received. All right? So let's unpack that. Part one, entering the land. Part two, taking the land. Part three, dividing the land. Part four, serving the Lord in the land. All right? Entering, taking, dividing, serving. But it might be helpful to zoom in a little bit further, right? To see some of the familiar landscape of this book as you've read it in the past. So let's look at each of these four parts a little bit more closely. In the first part of the book, which is all about entering the land, uh, we see four events covered, basically. 
There's the Lord charging Joshua to lead the people into the land. There's the story of Rahab hiding the two spies that were sent into the land, chapter 2. There's the Lord parting the Jordan River so that Israel can cross over into the land in chapters 3 and 4. And then there's Israel consecrating themselves in order to be ready to take the land in chapter 5. All right? So Joshua charged Rahab and the spies, the parting of the Jordan, and they're entering in, and then consecration. That's the first part of the book. Now, the second part of the book, which is all about Israel taking the land, it too covers four main events. So there's Israel taking Jericho, chapter 6. You remember that story, especially you kids, right? And then there's Israel punishing Achan and taking that little city of Ai in chapters 7 through 8. Then there's Israel not taking the land of Gibeon because Gibeon tricked them into letting them live. And that's in chapter 9. And then chapters 10 and 11 is basically Israel taking the entire rest of the land. All right? So that's the second part of the book. The third part of the book, which is all about the Lord dividing the land up, among the 12 tribes. Well, it too covers four events. So, the Lord divides the land east of the Jordan or yeah, east of the Jordan, because you remember there was two and a half tribes that lived on the east side of the Jordan. They called it the Transjordan region. So, first he divides that land up, and then he divides the entire land of Israel on the west side of the Jordan up between the nine and a half tribes that are left. And then in chapter 20, He designates cities of refuge, and in chapter 21, he gives the Levites some cities and pasture lands to live in. All right, so that's all about dividing up the land in four events. And then finally, the last part of the book, the fourth part. This is about Israel serving the Lord in the land, right? The last four chapters. Well, this too uh, basically covers four more events. There's the two and a half tribes pledging to serve the Lord when they leave the land and go to their special region on the east of the Jordan. There is Joshua charging the Israelites to serve the Lord in the land, chapter 23. There's Israel renewing their covenant with God and pledging to serve the Lord in the land. That's chapter 24. And then the very last part of the book tells us about how Joshua died. All about serving the Lord in the land. All right, so that's that's basically... An overview of what's in the book of Joshua at four, at three different levels of height, right? So, now, there are two main themes which really rise above everything else in the book of Joshua. Two main themes. The first of these is the theme of God being faithful to keep his promise, right? The theme of God being faithful to keep his promise. So, the book of Joshua really doesn't make any sense at all apart from that original promise that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, particularly verse 7 where he said, to your offspring I give this land, right? So he was going to give them the land of Canaan, the descendants of Abraham. Now that promise, you remember, if you've read through the Pentateuch, it's repeated many times in the book of Genesis. It's repeated To Abraham, again, it's repeated to his son, Isaac. It's repeated to his grandson, Jacob, just over and over again throughout the book. I will give your descendants this land. 
And then, of course, they go down into Egypt and they spend 400 years in Egypt and they grow into a great nation. So now Abraham's descendants are called the Israelites and they probably forgot about the promise. I mean, think about that. How long has America been in existence? You know, 270 plus years. They were in Egypt for 400 years. I mean, there's a lot that we've forgotten in our short history. Think how much they forgot. It appears even that they had actually started worshiping other gods. But guess who had not forgotten his promise that he had made? And that is God, right? And so the book of Exodus opens with God re-engaging with the Israelites and reiterating his commitment to keep that promise that he had given to Abraham. So, for instance, we read this in Exodus 6, 6 through 8. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now that promise is reiterated. So that's Exodus, right? The beginning of Exodus. It's reiterated again and again throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, throughout Numbers and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And the entire storyline of the whole Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, really moves you toward the fulfillment of that promise. But of course, Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses and with Israel waiting to take the land, but they're just right on the edge of the Jordan River. And it's Joshua that tells you the story of how God finally brought that ancient promise, first articulated in Genesis twelve seven, to its fulfillment. So the book of Joshua, you see, is all about how God kept his word. How he, God fulfilled his promise to the nation of Israel. And if you read the account, right, to a nation that was unbelieving and disobedient by and large. In other words, the book of Joshua is about God's grace and faithfulness to people that didn't deserve it. To wicked sinners. Brothers and sisters, God has given to us, this same God, many promises as his new covenant people in the scriptures. He has said to us that Jesus will return, our Savior, that he will judge the world in righteousness and raise us from the dead and bring us into a new creation where we will enjoy perfect fellowship with him through all eternity, freed from sin, freed from the effects of sin. And in the meantime, he has promised to sustain our faith, to answer our prayers, to give us wisdom for life, to protect our souls from harm, to provide for all of our needs, to never stop loving us as we traverse through this wilderness world toward the heavenly country. And Joshua reminds us that God is faithful to keep his word, that not one of his promises to us will ever fail. He will bring every promise to pass in his perfect way and his perfect time. 
And so in that way, the book of Joshua, one theme is that it teaches us to trust the Lord. The second most prominent theme, though, in Joshua is God's judgment upon mankind for sin. You know, when you read the book of Joshua, it's simultaneously a wonderful story and a horrifying story. It is wonderful how God graciously gave the land of Canaan to his people as an act of covenant faithfulness. But it's horrifying that he did so by telling them to completely drive out and destroy the inhabitants of the land as an act of judgment. You know, it's interesting to see, though, that the destruction of the Canaanites was actually first predicted 400 years earlier in the book of Genesis. In fact, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Do you remember that vision where God put Abraham into his sleep and and there was a flaming uh, torch and fire pot that passed through the pieces of the animal and he confirmed his promise to give his descendants to the land? But he told Abraham that your descendants are going to go down into Egypt and they're going to be in bondage for 400 years before I bring them back and give them the land. So all of this was predicted. And then in that vision, he told the Israelites why. Why would it be 400 years before he would give them this land? He said, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, when God did finally send the Israelites into Canaan to drive out the inhabitants, in Genesis 15, 6, they're called Amorites, with just a general term for the Canaanite nations, and to take their land, it would be an act of divine judgment upon the Canaanites for their iniquity. Their iniquity would have finally been complete. You could think about it this way. God was patiently waiting for 400 years bearing with the iniquity of the Canaanite nations as their sin grew worse and worse, piling higher and higher, like wine that's filling a cup until it finally overflows before he would bring at last his holy judgment upon them. And sure enough, by the time the Lord did bring the Israelites across the Jordan to conquer the Canaanites, they had become truly terrible. In fact, when you read the law of Moses, the law that God gave to Israel, this is what you shall do, this is what you shall not do as my holy people, he was constantly giving them laws that referred to the Canaanites, saying, don't do like they do, right? So the laws against things like bestiality and incense and cult prostitution and child sacrifice, he would say, you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. That's what they were doing there. In other words, these were the kind of things that the inhabitants of Canaan were doing for which God was sending the Israelites to destroy them or drive them out of the land. And in this sense, you see, the whole book of Joshua, from that perspective, was not only about God's faithfulness to keep his promise to sinful human beings, that is, Israel, as an act of mercy, it was also about him bringing judgment upon other sinners as an act of justice. Brothers and sisters, this is a reminder to us because there is an even greater day of judgment coming, isn't there? Upon a whole world of sinners. It's a reminder to us who have been saved 
through faith in Jesus Christ ourselves, whose own sins were paid for, and whose judgment was borne by Christ at the cross, that we, mean, we need to tell other sinners about how they can be saved too. Friends and family and co-workers and neighbors and others that we meet in the community. Why? Because God is the judge of all the earth and his judgment is coming upon the world when the iniquity of people is complete. And when that judgment falls, all those who have not taken shelter, as it were, in the ark of Jesus Christ are going to perish forever in hell for their sin. And those who believe these things ought not to withhold the good news from those around them who are still in their sins. So, these are the two most prominent themes in the book of Joshua. The wonder of God's gracious faithfulness, the terror of God's righteous judgment. But there are also many other smaller themes in the book of Joshua And I just want to highlight a few of those as well for you before we close. There is, for instance, a theme of the importance of God's people obeying his word. In fact, if you've read the book of Joshua, you remember how in the opening eight verses, where God famously charged Joshua in chapter 1 as the new leader of Israel. And he says this in verse 7, "...only be strong and very courageous." being faithful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. And then he told them to meditate upon the law every day and night. In chapter 11, verse 15, in other words, at the end of the conquest, it says that Joshua had been faithful to fulfill that charge. And then at the end of the book, he passed that charge on to the Israelites going forward. So chapter 23, verse 6, he said, Therefore, to the Israelites, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand to the left. And in response, Israel, at the end of the book, renewed their covenant with God, and they promised to obey his word as Joshua had done. Now, this theme of the importance of God's people to obey his word is no less important for us as God's new covenant people. You know, our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, does not lead us in paths of righteousness to take the fun out of life, right? No, as the Apostle Paul put it, his or John put it, his commands are not burdensome. Because they teach us how to live life as God intended it to be lived. So that we might experience God's blessing in life. Young people, don't kick against the instruction of your parents as they teach you how to obey the commands of God in Scripture. Your parents in doing that are pointing you to the good life. The the seductive call of your rebellious lusts, you know what those are, young people, and old people too. They promise you pleasure, but they only lead you down to the grave. True wisdom is, as the Bible teaches, to fear God and to keep his commandments. 
just as God told Joshua to do. And then, as he told Joshua, you will have success wherever you go. In concert with this, the importance of God's people trusting in him and not in themselves is another theme in the book of Joshua. So you actually probably remember how this transpired in Joshua, if you've read the book. So from the beginning, God charged Joshua to trust him. He said in chapter 1, verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you will go. Trust me, Joshua, I am with you. And then the rest of the book shows what happens when Joshua sometimes did that and then sometimes didn't do it. So, most famously, the Lord miraculously delivered the mighty city of Jericho into Joshua's hands when he simply trusted God and followed those simple directions to march around the city seven times and blow the trumpet, right? And that was a great victory. They, they trusted God and obeyed him, and they experienced victory. But then you remember what happened next, that when Joshua tried to defeat that tiny little city of Ai, and after that tried to decide how to respond to these Gibeonites who came to visit him, without consulting the Lord in either case, things went terribly awry in both cases. And this should be a sober warning to us as well, shouldn't it? Against a sinful self-reliance. Personal responsibility is not a bad thing. But there is a sinful self-reliance. In other words, listen, if it is no small thing in God's eyes to simply go about your lives trusting in your own wisdom and your own strength to get by, it is not a virtue to only cry out to God when you find that your own resources are deficient. I think some people think that that's a virtue. Like, God likes it that I'm basically handling my life on my own and only reach out to him for help sometimes. But that's not a virtue. Such behavior reflects an attitude of pride and of self-sufficiency. I got this, God. That's actually displeasing to God. It evokes his chastisement, his displeasure. Because God would have us express our dependence upon him for even our most basic needs every day. You remember Jesus taught us to pray this way. Give us this day our daily bread. And it's not folly to pray for help and guidance before anything that you try to do in the service of Christ. That's wisdom. God hates presumption. But it brings him glory when we express our humble dependence upon him. You remember that old proverb? We all learned it in VBS sometime. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We also see the theme of God's awesome power in the various ways that he gives Israel victory over the Canaanite nations 
in this book. Nations that were far larger and far more powerful than they were. In chapter 6, God actually caused the walls of the great city of Jericho to fall inward when they simply blew a trumpet blast. In chapter 10, the Lord gave Israel victory over the combined forces of five mighty kings of the Canaanites by throwing them into panic, causing large hailstones to fall down from heaven upon them, and even making the sun stand still in the sky so that Joshua's forces could complete their victory. Talk about power. Each time Israel won a battle, more Canaanite nations would combine their forces. So that by the end, the armies arrayed against Israel became more and more vast. But each time, Joshua led the Israelites to victory over them. And the book explains why. It says things like, And the Lord gave it also, and its kings, into the hand of Israel. Or chapter Chapter 10, verse 42. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. It was the Lord, not Joshua, not the people who ultimately destroyed or drove out the Canaanite nations. The conquest of Canaan was a display not of Israel's military might or skill, but the awesome power of the Lord, Yahweh, God Almighty. Christian, do you believe this about your God, who is this same God? So, for instance, when you seek to share the gospel with an unbeliever, or when you are up against it and you pray for much-needed financial provision, or when you've been asked to serve in a role in the church which is completely outside of what you think you can do, Do you believe God's power is more than sufficient to do what is necessary to help his children as he is pleased to do so? Well, I hope that the book of Joshua will actually help you not to doubt the power of God. One more theme that we see is that of sinners saved by grace through faith. Particularly in the story of Rahab, which unfolds in chapters 2 and chapter 6. As a Canaanite, Rahab was, as Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 3 or 2, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and a stranger to the covenants of promise. She's a total outsider. She's a Canaanite. And on top of that, she was a notorious sinner. She was a prostitute. And yet, when two Israelite spies ended up in her house, hiding from the authorities in Jericho, she had a decision to make. Would she turn them in, or would she protect them? And she protected them and hid them from her own people because, it turns out, she believed in the Lord, the God of Israel. And she hoped that he might save her from perishing in this judgment that was coming upon her land and her people. Just as a gift of grace. She couldn't have thought she deserved it, right? 
It's very interesting that the writer of Hebrews would later comment upon Rahab's faith. In Hebrews 11.31, he said, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Indeed, it's interesting that when you open up the Gospel of Matthew and you read through those boring names listed in chapter 1, you see a surprising fact. Rahab the prostitute had not only become part of the covenant community, but ended up becoming the mother of Boaz, the great-great-grandmother of David, and therefore an ancestor of the Messiah himself. And this event points, serves as a pointer, really, to the saving grace that any sinner, Jew or Gentile, can receive from the Lord, Yahweh, the God revealed in the Bible, through simple faith and trust in Him. If you believe in Him and you think, I think He'll save me. If I simply trust in Him and put my hope in Him, He will do so. Indeed, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you too can be saved, like Rahab, from perishing in the final judgment that's coming upon this world, if you will simply believe the Scriptures and put your hope in the God they reveal to save you by His free favor, His mercy, just like Rahab did. And the full story that Rahab didn't have access to, but we do now from the New Testament, is that the God of Joshua eventually sent His eternal divine Son in the fullness of time, into the world as a man to rescue men and women like you and me, sinners, from perishing for our sins by taking the penalty we deserved in our place and dying for us on the cross. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. He appeared alive again to his disciples and he sent them out to announce the good news that whoever believes in me, John 3.16, will not perish but have everlasting life. So then, sinner, unbeliever, here this morning, put your hope in him to save you by his grace. Apart from anything you did to earn it, and he will do it. Last of all, it should be noted that God seems to have intended the events recorded in the book of Joshua to do one other thing, to actually provide a pattern which prefigured and pointed forward to a greater event that would be accomplished by the Messiah, Jesus. The writer of Hebrews pointed this out in Hebrews chapter 4. So if you don't believe me, go back and read Hebrews chapter 4. He was looking at Psalm 95, and which talked about the conquest of Canaan and people entering into the promised land. And he noted from that psalm that Canaan was a place where God gave the Israelites rest. And yet, he noted, that the rest they experienced, according to the psalm, was not ultimate. Rather, the writer of Hebrews points out that a greater experience of rest still awaits the people of God. 
Namely, in what he would call in chapter 11, the better country, the heavenly country, the eternal homeland of God's people. And it's very interesting that just as God led Israel into his rest in Canaan through Joshua, so now we know from the New Testament that he is leading us, his new covenant people, into a greater experience of his rest in that heavenly homeland through the Messiah, who, by the way, his name is also Joshua. So as we read the amazing story of this conquest through Joshua recorded in this book that we're going to study, it should always point us forward to an even more amazing story of a far greater conquest that is occurring through Jesus Christ as all his enemies are being put under his feet. And one day, that last enemy, death itself, will be finally vanquished. And the good news is that every Christian in this room is part of this greater story. Well, in conclusion, we're about to embark on a study of this book of Joshua. And to get you ready for that, I've just spent this morning just introducing you to the book. So first, we covered some basic background matters, and then we looked at what's in the book and some major themes. Um, And next week, I'm actually going to take one more week to tackle a very difficult issue pertaining to the book of Joshua that I think it would be helpful for us to look at and to address before we finally, the following week, dive into Joshua chapter 1. Actually, not the following week, after Easter. But I pray that God will use this ancient book, the book of Joshua, to change our lives together as a church. And I hope that you will be praying for that same thing. Let's pray together and As I close us in prayer, if I could have the men who are going to be serving the Lord's Supper come up, that would be great. Father, we thank you for your word. We recognize that all scripture is breathed out by God, that it is from Genesis to Revelation, your very word, as men spoke from God, being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we know that all scripture is, because it is God-breathed, also profitable for us. Lord, we know that the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and that they are able to equip us for every good work. Father, we pray that you would do that through the book of Joshua. If there are any week after week as we go through who are not saved, young or old, that you would use this book to bring them to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And for all of us who are believers as we read this book, which has been written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come, that we would grow to know you more, that we would be instructed in what is true and right, and that we might be changed in our very character as a result of diving into this portion of Scripture together. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.